All right, today we're in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21, and I'm excited because just like every other vision in the book of Revelation and just like every other passage that deals with Jesus throughout the Bible, we have an opportunity to correct our Christology because everybody, every Christian needs to constantly work on correcting their Christology, that is the, their doctrine of Jesus, their understanding of Christ. And sometimes it's because we're getting serious points of doctrine wrong, but most of the time it's simply because we have an underdeveloped Christology, an underdeveloped understanding. It's just an incomplete picture, right? And sometimes it's, it's not that it's, uh, we haven't been studying, oftentimes it's because, well, we tend to favor some aspects of Jesus, certain aspects of Jesus, we favor those and maybe we ignore the others, pay less attention to them. You see, a lot of us have a conception of Jesus that resonates with our own sort of needs or personality traits. Like if you're, if you're one of those guys or ladies that likes to point your finger at people and point out errors and you like to be combative, then you're going to go to the Jesus that turns over the tables and the temple, the money changers. You're going to go to those passages where he's calling out Pharisees and scribes and you're going to be like, yeah, Jesus knows how to get it done. Gets in their face, points out their error. And uh, that's true that he, he does that when needed in specific situations, but he doesn't always do that. See, if that's what you gravitate towards, you have to understand that Jesus is also super compassionate and kind and gentle with people. In fact, he says that he is gentle and lowly in heart. Or maybe you're on that end of it. You just love that Jesus is the friend of sinners. And you know, like, oh, well, he is, he is a friend to the ungodly, to the unworthy. And in fact, it doesn't matter how bad you are. You can be the worst manifestation of humanity in history. And Jesus would walk up and embrace you as a sinner when you recognize your spiritual poverty and ask for mercy. He gives it. But you also need to recognize that Jesus, yes, he is the friend of sinners. He is forgiving, but he does not indulge sin. He does not tolerate wickedness. In fact, he calls us to obey. He says, you're not my disciple if you're not obeying. If you want to abide in me, you must love me. You must obey my commands. He values law and he values our obedience. So you get the idea. We will sometimes focus in on one aspect of Jesus that is true and we will neglect others. So we constantly need to correct our Christology to make sure that we have a full picture, as full as we can get. And of course, scripture is what helps us. The revelation of God helps with our conception of Christ. And today, we're going to see a very needed component of our Christology, and that is Jesus is a conquering savior. He's not just a suffering savior. He's just not a merciful savior. He is a conquering savior. And here is the takeaway from this text. The takeaway is simple. Only a conquering savior is worth believing in. I don't have time for a savior who suggests that he is going to save, but never actually conquers. Only a conquering savior can deliver us. Only a conquering savior will give us victory. We don't just need comfort. We do. But we need someone to conquer for us. And in that, we do find lasting comfort. So only a conquering savior is worth following. Only a conquering savior is worth believing in. Only a conquering savior is worthy of our worship. That's what we're going to see. 
So we're going to divide this passage into two sections, right? Verses 11 through 16 will give us an understanding of the conqueror, right, of Jesus himself. And then the second section uh, is verses 17 through 21 will give us an understanding of the conquering, what it is that Jesus actually will do when he returns. So here we are, we're beginning this, this new vision here. Uh, it's a vision of, of the end. It's the vision of the day of the Lord. It's another exploration of this great day of judgment. So the conqueror, verses 11 through 16. Then I saw, we see that a lot when visions begin in the book of Revelation. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one understands but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would teach us today. Help us to know, help us to understand, help us to believe, help us to respond in obedience. We pray that you would change us not just our theology, that you would change us wherever necessary. In Christ's name, amen. So the vision begins and we see, okay, then I saw heaven opened, right? And this happens elsewhere uh, in Revelation for uh, there's a door opened in heaven, he says, and so it's, heaven is opened and he gets to peek in and see what's happening. Heaven opens like this in a, in a couple of different ways. But I was drawn to the Gospels here because in Matthew chapter 3, the heavens were opened. It was when Jesus was baptized. Listen to Matthew 3, starting in verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Jesus is baptized, comes up out of the water like a Baptist, and he looks up, and the heavens are opened, and coming from heaven is the Holy Spirit to rest upon him, to commission the beginning of his ministry. And this is a very different thing now in Revelation. This seems like a, uh, in Matthew, it's a, it's a beautiful, inspiring picture. It's wonderful. It's, it's, it's easy and now we're in Revelation 19 and the heavens are opened and there's a white horse crashing through with a rider on it and he is coming to make war? I hope you're prepared to adjust your understanding of Jesus because we all get a little uncomfortable with some of the things that scripture says and that's okay. You don't have to be comfortable with everything scripture says but you do have to be willing to embrace what scripture says especially when it challenges your preconceived ideas of the truth. 
If we don't do this, we will be carried away by every wind of doctrine. We will be carried away by the whispers and the lies of the world. We need to commit ourselves to seeking to understand and embrace what is revealed here. So we have a picture of Jesus riding a white horse coming through this opening into heaven. This is the beginning of the great day of judgment. This is the picture. Now he's on a white horse, right, representing victory, uh, dominion, and, and authority, And Jesus is called faithful and true, right? The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. Now, again, this is also a a reference to um, what we read earlier, Revelation 3, 14. uh, Jesus is called faithful and true. Um, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right? Okay, so... This is a a, a letter that we already went through to this particular church, and it says the words of, this is Christ who's going to be speaking to them, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So Jesus is the one who is going to address the church, and he is called faithful and true. Now, how is Jesus faithful and true? Jesus is faithful in that he is trustworthy. I think this is the primary idea here. He is trustworthy. What he has said, he will do. What he has promised will come to pass. Think of all the promises that Jesus had made throughout his ministry. Think of all the promises in the gospels that Jesus made. That he will give you peace. That no one can snatch you out of his hand. That if you come to him, he will raise you up on the last day. Jesus promises to give you grace to persevere to the end that he will never leave you Jesus promises us an eternity a vindication he promises us a victory he is faithful and trustworthy we can take him at his word this gives us hope and courage he is also faithful in a secondary sense here I think in this passage that he is faithful to the will of God he perfectly executes the will of the father he fulfills all righteousness he kept God's law throughout his ministry on earth so he is faithful in every way and he is true in an ultimate sense Jesus is true he's not just one who tells the truth He is the truth. And Jesus says this in John 14, verse six. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus claims for himself the position of absolute authority and reality. He is faithful and true. We can trust him and we must believe him or we are fools. Now, faithful and true, Jesus is coming. And why is he coming? He's coming in righteousness to judge and make war. Now, Jesus came the first time not to judge the world, but to, but to save the world, to save sinners. But his, in his second coming, he is coming to judge the world. He is coming to finally right all of the wrongs that have been happening throughout history. He is coming to finally vindicate and raise up his people and all who are innocent and righteous. He raises us up, vindicates us. Evil will be punished. This is the war that we're ultimately talking about and it happens in different ways. And as this vision continues in verse 12, we get a picture of Jesus' face. 
His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Jesus' face, it says that he has eyes that are a flame of fire. And we see this earlier in chapter 1, verse 14 of the book of Revelation. Jesus has eyes that are lit up with a holy indignation, a righteous wrath. Jesus is coming to judge. His patience is now come to an end. He's not flying off the handle like when our patience comes. Our patience comes to an end and we explode. Jesus isn't exploding. His response, his warring, his conquering is perfectly measured out in every way. The time for patience is over and now he is coming to war. His eyes are aflame with a righteous fire of indignation and it says that he has many diadems on his head. You might think a diadem is a crown but really here the idea is it's like a ribbon. These diadems were tied into the hair of a leader or even a, a conqueror. It, it really, it's, it's, it established that this ribbon would be an indication of a realm of authority that he has. And Jesus has multiple. And so this means a couple of things. Number one, it means that Jesus has authority over all realms, all circles, all environments. He has absolute full authority. He is truly sovereign. But this is also a response to the diadems that were worn by Satan as an imposter, right? In chapter 12, he has these diadems. The, these, the beast has, has, has a diadem, right? The, the dragon has, has diadems. And they have these multiple uh, claims to authority in the world. And Jesus is here shown to be the one that has true authority. They are imposters. I am the true Lord of Lords. And we read that he has a name that no one knows. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. Now, there's a lot of different ways to interpret this, but I, the, the, what makes the most sense to me, right, as a reader of, of Scripture, is the view. There's many views. We don't have time to go through all of the views. But there is a view that is common uh, among a lot of scholars, like I said, different views. But the idea here is, is that this name that, that is written that nobody really knows isn't a name that you can say. He has, Jesus has many names in scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. But this name that is written that nobody knows is simply the truth that Jesus is fully divine. He and the Father are one. Right, that's what Jesus says. He is God incarnate. And so to say that, that he has a name that no one knows, name here is tied up with who he really is, his very nature, his very essence. It is something beyond our complete understanding that Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are three persons distinct from one another and yet they are one being. They have one essence and one nature. Jesus is riding this white horse of victory. He is faithful and true, coming to judge and to make war. He is righteously angry, demonstrating he has all authority. He is the Lord. 
And in verse 13, we see that he is wearing a blood-soaked robe. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. This robe dipped in blood, there's two, there's two views here um, on what that is. Now, the most common thing that we probably think about when we think of Jesus in blood is his death, his sacrifice. By his wounds, we are healed. By the shedding of his blood, we are not only cleansed from our unrighteousness, but the wrath of God is satisfied. That's that work of propitiation. And it could be that. It could be that his blood, his robe dipped in blood is a depiction of the sacrifice that he made for sinners, that's very possible. In fact, throughout Revelation, the blood of the, that is, is associated with Jesus, chapter one, chapter five, and so on, um, is a reference to his sacrifice. Could be that. The other thing that it could be is it could be not his blood, but the blood of his enemies. In context, this is a real possibility, that it's the blood that, that is the consequence of his judgment of the, the world and the devil and all of his cohorts. It's a picture, it's a depiction that this victory is spiritually violent. In either case, we have these two truths, that Jesus will destroy the wicked and when he comes in victory, it is because he has already been victorious over the devil and death and, and all sin and unrighteousness through his sacrifice on the cross so he's wearing a blood-soaked robe and I'll be honest with you I don't know I don't know which one it is <laughs> I don't know it doesn't say which one it is but those are the two best guesses and then people like to say well it's both okay I guess it could be both I don't know all the imagery though is giving us this one united picture of Jesus glorious glorified and terrifying in many ways I'm inclined to think it's the blood of the enemies because of context. But here he comes to judge, and he is called the Word of God. So here's a name that we know. Jesus is the Word of God. The name by which he is called, Word of God. Who wrote the book of Revelation? Anybody know? John, right? The apostle John. The, one of the guys super tight, super close with Jesus. Well, John didn't just write Revelation. He wrote the Gospel of John. And he didn't just write the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, later general epistles. Now, in his Gospel, the Gospel of John, his Gospel is different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's a very different sort of Gospel. All true, all complimentary. He just does it differently. Looks like Matthew and Luke were borrowing from Mark a lot in the compilation of, of their Gospels. So in John, it begins with this statement. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning, you think Genesis, right? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That's what John says. And then he says in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He says, Jesus should be called the word. Right, the ultimate, full, and final revelation of God. In fact, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it. 
Jesus is called the word of God because that is what he is, the ultimate, full, final revelation of God. If you have seen Jesus, you have seen God. And this glorified, warring Jesus is leading an army. People are coming with him in this picture, right? The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. The picture here, right? This big, huge picture. Jesus is coming back, and there's a mass number of beings with him. And some people will argue, well, these, these are angelic beings, and other people will argue these are these are people that have followed Christ. This is, uh, this is the church, the people of God. And I really do believe it's, it's probably both. It's, it's probably all of those that God have created, both angelic beings who have remained faithful to him and the people that have been redeemed. Because all we know about these beings is that they are wearing bright white linen arrayed in fine linen white and pure and the people that we see wearing this are both angels and saints throughout the book of revelation you could look at chapter 7 and chapter 15 right if you want to get a picture of that angelic beings wearing fine white linen and people so jesus is coming back and he's coming back bringing everyone who is with him because there is going to be a war and we read about this sword and this rod in verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword from which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Now we read about a sword coming out of Jesus' mouth in chapter one, verse 16, right? It's already a part of the picture, right? This sword comes out of, of his mouth. And at the, at the very least, what we should understand here is that Jesus speaks his words are true, and by his very word, he strikes down and destroys his enemies. He is victorious with what he says. After all, how was creation put together? We're told God spoke it in the creation. When Jesus wants to calm a raging storm, he simply speaks, and it is stilled. And here in the end, he comes and he speaks truth. The sword that comes from his mouth will destroy his enemies. The army behind them doesn't even have to lift a finger. And he has a rod, right? This rod of iron. Now look at what it says. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. And he will rule that. So let me read it again. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. So the rod, the staff, the scepter is probably best understood by what he means, what is meant by rule. The problem is that word rule means shepherd. So we have some issues with how we should translate this word rod, or at least how we should understand its use. Clearly, he's coming to judge the world, but he's also vindicating his people and conquering their enemies. So I think about it very much like this. He is still a shepherd. We have this full picture of Jesus. Yes, he is warring. He is a warrior, but he is still a shepherd. 
And with this rod of a shepherd, he is conquering the enemies, defending the church, protecting them while ruling well. And then we read about the wine press. You see it? He will tread the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Most of you know what a wine press is in one way or another. You can figure it out, right? You put a bunch of grapes into this container, large or small, and you use something, hopefully not your dirty feet, but you use something to smash the grapes, and the grapes juice falls through into another container, and then that goes through a process of fermentation, and then you get wine, right? So the wine press is used in scripture in a number of different ways, but one of the ways it is used as a metaphor or as a figure of speech is it is a picture of the wrath of God. Just as those grapes are crushed and what looks like blood flows, so God will judge the wicked in the day of judgment. In fact, I'll just give you one passage, Isaiah 63. Isaiah 63, verses 2 and 3. This is, again, a, a prophet speaking forth about a day of judgment to come. He says, why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in a winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered against my garments and stained all my apparel. The wine press is a tool that blesses God's people, gives them wine. But here it's being used as an image of God's anger and his wrath. In fact, wine, while predominantly depicted in scripture as a positive, is sometimes used as a metaphor for God's wrath. You will, even in the book of Revelation, in... Um, What chapter? Mm, I think it's 14. I want to give this to you and not get it wrong. Yeah, Revelation 14, 10. So even the, the, the wicked are forced to drink the wine of God's wrath, the wine of his judgment. They must drink that cup. That same cup that Jesus said, if this is the cup that I have to drink, great. If, if it can pass by me, Lord, that would be wonderful, but not my will, but your will be done. See, Jesus knows that cup because he did drink it for all of us who believe. So he's got the sword. He's got the rod. He's treading this winepress of God's wrath, and he has a name written now, let me just tell you this. Verse 16 is used by a lot of dudes who argue that this is a picture of Jesus having a tattoo. This is not a picture of Jesus having a tattoo. I would love for Jesus to have a tattoo. I would celebrate that. Like, hey, Jesus got a tattoo. Uh, that, that, that's not what's happening here. So these are people really stretching. It's called eisegesis when you read your meaning into a passage that isn't there. Exegesis means we want to draw out the meaning of the text, understanding its context and all of that. So it says, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So where is this name written? It says, on his robe and on his thigh. And even though this can be translated in a few ways, you have to determine 
is it in the thigh area of his robe or is it on his thigh or is it on both? Is it on his robe and is it on his thigh? It's all very possible. It has to at least be on the robe, which means it can't be a tattoo. And what would be depicted on his thigh wouldn't be a tattoo, but a, a demarcation. It oftentimes is found in paintings and in sculptures of conquerors. Their, their name is on their thigh. It's a, the thigh represents strength and stability and, and, and the, the willingness and the ability to conquer. The point may simply be that Jesus is what his name says, both externally, robe, and internally. This is who he is. And what is this name? King of kings and Lord of lords. It means there is no king but Jesus, and there is no Lord but Jesus. There is no one higher. No one compares. And yes, we have kings, and yes, we have lords in this world, but compared to Christ, they are nothing. They are zero. The early church took this so seriously that they would not say Caesar is Lord. They wouldn't say it. That was the custom you're supposed to say. You're supposed to recognize his divinity, his status. And you know what I think we would do? I think we would totally justify it. We'd be like, okay, he's not, he's not the Lord, Lord, but he's Lord. You know, he's Lord here. You know, Oliver Cromwell was Lord Protector, right, in the 17th century. So, couldn't we just say, oh, Caesar is Lord, but what we mean in our hearts is that, well, no, Jesus is really the ultimate Lord. Early church wasn't having any of that. They were willing to die because they took this name so seriously. I think they had a fuller, more complete understanding of who Jesus really is. Their conception, I think, was more informed by a full picture, the full revelation of God. Jesus' first coming is so different from his second coming, isn't it? We're talking about his second coming here. When the heavens open and Christ comes crashing through on a, on a white horse, in his first coming, it was quiet and humble, so meek. He was born of Mary, a woman of, of no influence or consequence culturally. He had to be bathed, changed. We're talking about the one through whom God created all things. We're talking about the Son of God. And yet he grew in wisdom and stature. He had a truly human experience, experiencing hunger and thirst and fatigue, friendship, betrayal, isolation, suffering, and death. He rode a donkey into Jerusalem, not even a horse. He came in humbly to save. He suffered and died and rose. All of this condescending, humble love to redeem sinners. But when he comes again, he rides a white horse. He has diadems in his hair. This is judgment time and deliverance time. He's coming to bring final judgment against all evil and vindicate his own. That's the first section here. We spent more time here because I wanted to have a clear conception of Jesus, the conqueror. In verses 17 through 21, we get a picture of the conquering. In verses 17 and 18, 
It says, then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of the captains, the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of the horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Here we read about a second banquet. This is not like the wedding banquet that we talked about last week. That was a good time. That was a party. This is nasty. This is fearful. This is bloody. All people are going to be judged here. All people. No one has an excuse. Doesn't matter whether you're rich or or, or poor, great or small. Doesn't matter if you're a leader or a follower. If you have rejected God and persisted in your idolatry, there will be an answer for your sin in the form of deserved, measured judgment. And so the angel up near the sun, so all the birds can see him, says, okay, birds, time to feast. Eat the flesh of those who have perished by the sword that comes out of the mouth of our Savior, our conquering Savior. It's a hard word. But again, we've got to be willing to embrace what Scripture says about Jesus and about the plan. We don't get to pick and choose. It's one of the things that I have found actually invites more dialogue with my non-Christian friends and people that I meet. When I tell them, listen, man, I'm not saying that I'm right. I'm not saying that I, I, listen, I'm not making up what I believe. I'm not determining what I believe. What I'm saying is that the Bible is right. I, I believe that this ancient book is the very word of God so I'm doing my best to understand it to live according to it I'm doing my best to understand who God is based on this book so it's constantly challenging and refining my preconceived ideas well here's the conquering big picture the second banquet the great day absolute complete catastrophic judgment but then we get a closer look of this starting in verse 19 and I saw the beast And the kings of earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Now, there is a war. Now, there's always a war. There has always been a war. We've seen this in the book of Revelation, a kind of war between Jesus and the church and the devil and the world. It's been going on forever. But in the end, there will be an intensified battle. Things will get worse in the very end, but there will be a certain victory. The beast from the sea that's mentioned here that we've already looked at, this beast that represents Satan's power in and through world kingdoms and and organizations and, and movements, and the kings of the earth that the beast uses are going to war. That's the conflict. But the victory is found in Christ. Look at what it says in verse 20. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet. That's the second beast, the beast from the land. I know that's a lot to take in if you haven't been with us, but we've been going through these chapters. So, the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who is in its presence, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So let's just get the picture here. The beast and the false prophet, 
satanic instruments in the world that will rise up, especially in the, the last part of the last days, are captured and are thrown alive into the lake of fire. It's not even that they are killed in a physical sense. They go straight to final judgment. But as for the rest, they are slain. The world experiences death and then judgment. The theme of the book of Revelation is, is, is something that we've seen consistently throughout. The theme is the victory of Jesus, or the victory of Christ and his people over the devil and the world. That's the theme. We see it over and over again. So yes, our Savior is a Savior who suffered for us, but he is also a Savior who is victorious for us. And only a conquering, victorious Savior is worth following. Because we need full and complete redemption. We need protection. We need deliverance. You see, the return of Christ, this whole picture, is about justice and vindication. God's always been a conquering God, but we've only seen it in part, in measure, here and there. We have a conquering God when he delivers Israel from Egypt, in the book of Exodus. We see Israel empowered by God as they conquer the land of Canaan. God is conquering for them. We read about it in the Psalms. We read about it, read about it in, in the prophets, how God is a God who lifts up, protects, defends, and ultimately vindicates or justifies his people. And here we're seeing Christ as he is now, a conquering savior who is a present help. You see, I need a conquering savior, not just for the end. I need a conquering savior today because there is no way I will make it through today without him. I won't. I wouldn't persevere in faith. I've been a Christian since 1990. So you could do the math. That's easy. It's too hard for me, but it's easy for you. I can't do that math. But I've been in a few decades and I guarantee you, I wouldn't have lasted any time at all if it weren't for his preserving grace. He has defeated sin and death. He has defeated the devil. The devil cannot touch me without the permission of my Savior. And if he allows the devil to afflict me, he promises my ultimate victory and the victory that I have now, even if it isn't life in this mortal body. It is the life of my faith guaranteed to continue we need a victorious conquering savior a warrior who wins Jesus is coming against the enemies of God and all that is good and the wicked will be held accountable if you care about people and the world if injustice breaks your heart if oppression and evil is something that is painful for you, then you long for the return of Christ because you long for justice to finally come because we're not going to see it in this life. Jesus is coming again to judge the enemies of God's people. He conquers them. And what he does is he vindicates us. In other words, he proves us to be his. He demonstrates to the world who thought we were losers and lost or worthless, who thought we were defeated because they could take our lives by throwing us into lion's dens or persecuting us and chasing us down with guns. 
He proves that we are more than conquerors, that we are victorious with him. He proves not that we were right and they were wrong, but that he is right and we were with him. That's our vindication. We have vindication now by the perseverance of our faith, even in the face of death. But it all comes to fulfillment in the end. We have to know this. We have to know these two aspects of Jesus. And there's much more, but we have to know this, that Jesus is a savior who suffered and Jesus is a savior who is victorious, who conquers. So two passages of scripture I want to leave you with because no matter where you are at, these two truths you must embrace. One we already looked at, it's 1 Peter chapter uh, 3, verse 18. We looked at this when we observed the Lord's Supper. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Jesus suffered willingly for sinners who weren't worth it because he loved us anyway. He gave himself willingly to redeem us. He humbled himself. He gave his life up. He suffered an, an unrighteous, ugly murder by bad people. He let unclean hands, not just touch him, but kill him. Why? To redeem us. That was his suffering. And in his suffering, in his death and in his resurrection, he is defeating. He is even in that conquering all of our enemies so that we have a promised victory as well. Because Jesus is not just one who suffered for us to save us. He is one who delivers us by conquering our enemies. So one last passage, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer is, everybody can still be against you if God is for you. And they will be. That's how it works. The point is, people being against you means nothing if God is for you. That's the point. He who, will not, who, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things, all things that we need? Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who is going to separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written... For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's what the church experiences. Hardship, difficulty, even death. Verse 37 says, no, in all these things that we will experience, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is our victory today. His love for us is certain, secure. It's why our faith continues because nothing can separate us from his love. Even when we want to give up on him, he doesn't give up on us. He preserves the gift of faith that he gave us. Jesus is a conquering savior and therefore he is worthy of following. He is worth believing. He is worth worshiping because he suffered for you and died and conquered our enemies that we with him will reign 
forever together, but only by his righteousness, seen in the sacrifice and in the accomplishment of the work the Father gave him to do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us to grow in our appreciation for all that you are and all that Jesus is. Help us to have a better, experiential, robust, biblical Christology. We don't want to be theologians in our brains only, Lord, but in our hearts we want to be followers of Christ in every way and we want our understanding of Jesus to be so thoroughly formed by your word that we can worship enthusiastically with loud voices proclaiming all of his excellencies. We thank you, Lord, for what you have given us in Jesus. In his conquering name we pray, amen.